This weekend, we're excited to welcome back our venue campus pastor, Rustin Rossello, who will continue his teaching in Luke chapter 8. Last weekend, he taught that God wants to do more in our lives than provide relief. He wants us to experience restoration and discover his great plans for us. This week, he'll continue the story of Jairus and his daughter, and we'll see how Jesus meets our needs in unexpected ways. Please welcome back Pastor Rustin Rossello. Well, good morning, church. Welcome, Cactus Chapel venue. Many of you who are joining us online, it is good to be here with you this morning. We're gonna wrap up our summer set, and next week, as uh, many of you are kind of figuring out, Jamie will be home, or as we are kind of returning, uh, talking about it here on campus among the staff, Dad comes back. So, uh, I texted with him this week, and he's always so encouraging of his young pastors, and so he just said, hey, I'm praying for you as you prepare and you present. Uh, I'm encouraged by you. I was just very blessed by that. And I said, well, we love you too and we miss you, so hurry home. So we're excited to have him back here next week and um, even hearing some of the things that are on his heart from his time away in his prep. Our church is gonna be very blessed over the months to come as we always are. Uh, last week, we, we got to walk through the first eight verses or basically half of my favorite story in the Bible. It's just so rich with Jesus' goodness. And so this week, we're gonna pick up in the middle of a story and some of you may not have heard the first half, which is gonna make it tough on you. So I'm gonna do some recap here, because today what we're gonna focus on is the faith of Jairus and the power of Jesus. And last week, we kind of started half this story. This man named Jairus is a synagogue official or a Pharisee, and he's sitting there, and he kind of comes, and, and he falls at the feet of Jesus. He starts walking with Jesus after he explains, I've got a daughter, and she's sick, and she's about 12 years old. And so they just start walking together, and it's interruption after interruption after interruption until finally our second main character from last week, this hemorrhaging woman, shows up. She reaches out. She touches Jesus, which was culturally absurd because of her being bleeding, and, and she all of a sudden gets this instantaneous healing, and she splits. She heads for the door, and Jesus calls her back and has this exchange with her where she's not just healed physically, but he restores her. Uh, socially and relationally, and, and then finally declares her made well, and he calls her daughter, which has this implication of her being invited into a family. He only calls one woman daughter in the whole New Testament, it's this woman, and he uses the word sozo for well, which is the Greek word that we know for saved. And it's this deep restoration where he actually restores her spiritually and eternally. Now, I kinda talked last week about, we, we drop Jairus off as we start to focus on this hemorrhaging woman, and then we start walking it out today as we're looking at what happens to this poor man whose daughter is at home sick. And so to do that, let's read our next eight verses now, if you turn your attentions to the screens. Last week ended in verse 48, Jesus says this, and he said to her, this hemorrhaging woman, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. And then for this week, verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died, do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, do not be afraid any longer, only believe and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, stop weeping for she has not died, but is asleep. And they all began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up immediately and he gave orders 
for something to be given her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Uh, this is kind of a, a tough spot to pick up a story because it's not great news for our, our friend Jairus. He, he's been walking with Jesus sort of in faith that Jesus can do something. He's had an expectation of what Jesus will do. And, and yet, no sooner do we get into verse 49 than Jesus is just done with one thing and now comes a known figure. Someone who Jairus would have recognized. It's someone from his house and they don't just bring a message. They bring an opinion. They bring a statement a limitation on what they believe Jesus can do. If you kind of look at that, you see this idea that he brings news, your daughter has died, but he also brings his opinion, don't trouble the teacher anymore. You see, what this person is doing is they're going, hey, look, here's what happened, your daughter's passed away. Doesn't leave Jairus to kind of figure it out on his own, he simply goes, because she's died, this now places her outside of Jesus' ability to care for her. So let's leave him alone now, and we can all kind of move on with our lives. Jairus is just getting attacked. We've all had moments like these in our faith walks where you're sitting there and you're just kind of going, I just don't know how much faith I've got for where God's taking me. Jairus is assuredly at that point in his life, a desperate moment for his child. And as he sits there, he's being attacked by someone he knows. They're saying, leave him alone. Now, our accountant Luke doesn't give a great record of the faith of Jairus because this man is incredibly, intensely faithful for Christ. Matthew 9, 18 tells us this, though. It says that Jairus responds by saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her and she will live. See, Jairus has been devastated in this moment. His worst fears, his nightmare has come to pass and still, with what we see in Matthew 9, he is faithfully clinging to Christ. Many of you can finish this statement. It's sort of where Jairus is at this point. When Jesus is all you have, you realize that Jesus is all you need. Jairus is there. He's got absolutely nothing left. No one else could possibly heal his daughter, and now he's just clinging to Christ, going, I really don't know how this works, but I know that you're all I've got. Jesus, when he responds in verse 50, he says this. He answered him, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. It's almost in this moment as if Christ is sort of encouraging Jairus along. He knows his heart. He's been walking with him for at least a little bit. And he's looking at Jairus just going, hey, hang in there with me. Don't quit. Keep walking. I've got a plan. It's really good. I promise. Just stick with me in this. And the way that he encourages Jairus is with kind of two exhortations, two things to kind of do, and then a reassurance or a promise. It's don't be afraid, only believe, and then that if he does, the promise that she'll be made well. Do not be afraid. Church, I want you to see today that fear is actually the biggest thief of your faith. It's fear that steals faith. It tells you don't go on. It tells you you can't make it through this. And the first thing that Jesus does is he attacks that one head on and just goes, don't be afraid. You see, that'll kill you right now, Jairus. Do not be afraid. Only believe. That's a, an interesting thing to tell someone who's just lost a child. Keep in mind, the context of this moment is like the worst news someone could get. Some of you have sat with people as they've found out that their child passed. Can you imagine looking at them and saying, only believe? But Jesus is pointing Jairus back at him, I think for a very specific reason. 
If we look at Hebrews 11.1, 1, we get a great description of what faith is or what belief in Christ looks like. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. At this point in his story, Jairus is now at a place where he is having to hope for something he's never seen. Jesus has never done this in Jairus' life. In fact, he's never done much in Jairus' life. And Jairus' hope is that Jesus can expand beyond his wildest dreams and categories to do something else. And then the reassurance and the promise is just that she'll be made well. From there, we go kind of back to the house. We're no longer at the Capernaum coast. We're now at a place in verse 51 where we're at Jairus' home. It says, when he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now, if we just look at verse 51, does it sound like it's got a lot to apply to your life? It's like, nope, we're just kind of, we're in the middle of a narrative. We're just kind of setting the stage here. I'm going to camp on this for a second because I think it has a lot to say to our lives. Jesus had followers, okay? It's why when he was at the Capernaum coast, people were waiting for him when he came back. It's why if we bump forward two chapters, Luke 10 is going to show us that there were 72 who were following him. Where did these 72 come from? Where, where, where have they been? Well, they're just following Jesus because he's doing some pretty cool things. So they're just walking with him. And then inside of the 72, he's got another layer of relationships. He's got the 12. These are some of his closest friends. They eat together, they walk together, they're journeying all the time, and they're with Jesus supporting him in his ministry, and he's teaching them. Inside of that, Jesus has this kind of small group of guys, Peter, James, and John, they're present in big moments like where he's about to raise a person from the dead. I don't know if anyone's ever seen that. It's not part of the typical Christian experience, but these guys are getting to witness that. They're also present when Jesus goes up the mountain at the transfiguration. This is a really close group, a small group, if you will. And even beyond that, you could argue that Jesus had a best friend, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who was right beside him during the final supper, and it's John. So here's what I want to submit to you, church, in this verse that seems like it's just setting stuff up. If your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who experienced perfect relationship in the Trinity, during his time here on earth, saw fit to have layers of community, might you want to do the same in your life? Because here's the problem. Based on the facts that I see, about 50% of you in this church don't have a small group. You don't have people you're walking with. You wanna hear an announcement like we just had in front of the whole church today and most of us are kinda of like, yeah, those small group things aren't really for me. And yet I bump into so many of us on a regular basis and you're talking about things that are going through your life and the deer in the headlights question that any pastor can ask is, how is your small group supporting you in the midst of this? I don't really have one. You see, when your hair's on fire and your life's coming unraveled, that's not the time to go find a community. But if you're in the midst of a godly group of people who are loving and supporting each other as they walk through life, not because it's convenient, not because it's popular, we're not doing small groups because they're popular, we're doing small groups because we see them all over the scriptures. If you're in the midst of that type of community and your life comes unraveled, it is the sweetest experience in the world, I'll tell you this from my own experience, to watch the body of Christ rally around you and go, what do you need? Do you need a meal? Do you need a babysitter? You need someone to show up at your kitchen table right now just to hear you cry, and we all say the same thing. No, no, I'm fine. Yeah, no, like crazy creaming and like crying and screaming, that's usually an indication that people are fine. It's like, you're not fine. And most of you, like right now, as soon as I said the word small group, some of you just like checked out. You're the one I'm talking to. 
okay? This is so important. It is the thing that most of us need the most and what so many of us do not have. Brian McAnally is our pastor of groups, okay? He's doing an incredible job with his team rallying together small groups that are meaningful and impactful. And if some of you are sitting back going, I've tried that, I don't need it, or, or I didn't like it, it didn't work, okay, fine. Grab some people who you wanna walk through life with and just start meeting. Let us know so we can give you resources. But don't miss the fact that if Jesus saw this as an important thing, it's probably important for us as well. How many of you thought that was in verse 51? Anybody see that coming? Yeah, I caught you napping on that one. All right. Verse 52. Now they're all, they were all weeping and lamenting for her. But he said, stop weeping, for she has not died but is asleep. They began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. This is, we got to contextualize this, because this doesn't make much sense for us modern day. Okay? Mark 5, another parallel passage here, says that the Lord witnessed a commotion. Matthew 9, 23 says the flute players... What is that? And the crowd were in noisy disorder. Jesus has just walked into a first century funeral. This is what they were like. We don't have any category for this because this is not what our funerals are like. Uh, I, I immediately asked the question, if this is a first century funeral, how did it come together so quickly? Well, this is first century, Middle East, arid climate. Bodies don't keep well, okay? The minute people pass, it's time to start the process because in a day or two, this is gonna be a real, real uncomfortable scenario. And so right away, as soon as this girl was sick, whether it had been a week, a month, a year, however long she'd been, everybody was sort of on alert that at any point, we might need to kind of pull things together and get over to this house. So this thing's in full swing. A modern funeral, what do we see? It's friends, it's family, it's dark clothes, it's a somber environment because that's how we pay tribute to the one who's passed. And we respect the family because that's what we do. First century funeral, the attenders are friends and family as well as a fun third category, hired professional mourners, female mourners, okay? They literally hired pros to come in and cry. Like this is what this looks like. So these women would come in who were hired and they would scream, they would tear their clothes, they would make noise. It was loud, inharmonious instruments. It was crazy and controlled chaos because the louder it was, the more honor you were paying to the one who passed. Jairus, being wealthy and important, he would have had a funeral that probably would have topped them all. So this is an insane environment that Jesus walks into and what I want you to see today is that when he walks in, he does the most culturally inappropriate thing you could possibly do. He comes in and he stops the chaos. He looks at them and he says, stop weeping for she has not died but is asleep. Now, church, that'd be like me walking into a normal funeral and screaming and yelling. That would be insane. You'd look at me like this guy's lost his mind. But Jesus comes in and he doesn't just stop everything, which you gotta think everybody's going, what's this guy doing? But he says something really weird. He comes in and he says, she hasn't died, she's asleep, okay? Jesus, I assume, was at least a fairly smart guy, okay? It's not like he's sitting there going, I just kind of misunderstood what this is. He's doing something really powerful here, but it caught the whole crowd so off guard that they start laughing at him. Jesus is using an earthly thing to teach about a kingdom thing. You see, in the midst of this moment, Jesus is having to contextualize 
his reality. You see, he didn't come down to earth and go, I'm gonna just kind of keep propping you guys up in the midst of your earthly realities. He's going, I want to show you my reality, and my reality is a kingdom reality. So I don't view death the same way you view death. How do I look at death? I look at death, what's something I could, it's like you guys think about sleep. See, I view it as temporary. And the reason I view it as temporary is because I, I'm a Lord over even death. I'll prove it to you in just a minute. I'll put my money where my mouth is. But Jesus is sitting there going, I'm gonna give you a different lens to look through because that's what Jesus does in our lives. He changes realities. He shifts environments and he refocuses us on new things. He focuses us on kingdom things, not earthly things, because so many earthly things are broken. Many of you have experienced this in your lives. Jesus came into your life and he changed your reality. You see, you started to live different. You started to be married in a different way. You started to change the way that you thought about dating or about parenting. Whatever your season of life was, it changed your reality. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's coming in and going, listen, yeah, I know she's died, but I need you to see that I view death as just as temporary as you view sleep. You close your eyes, you go to a different place, and when you open your eyes again, you're back. And that's what I think of death as. From there, he really does. He puts his money where his mouth is while everyone's laughing and mocking him. In verse 54, he steps up and it says, he, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. She got up immediately and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Man, what Jesus does here is sort of out of hand. He comes in and the first thing he does is he reaches down and he touches this girl. Now I taught you guys last week, there's three categories for every Jew that you had to avoid. Don't be one, don't touch one, and it was the bleeding, the leprous, and the dead. Jesus, just like five verses ago, had a woman touch him who was bleeding, which would have rendered him unclean. Jairus, being a good Pharisee, would have been like, well, I guess I'm done because he can't do ministry anymore, he's not clean. Now he walks right into Jairus' house and the first thing he does is touch a dead girl. Like he's just hit 66% of their no-no list and it's only been 16 verses. And we know that he touched lepers as well. Why is he doing this? Does Jesus just like to screw with people? No, he doesn't. He's shattering a religious paradigm that is currently in place. You see, everything about the religious paradigm at the time for, to, to be Jewish was to follow the law. And you see, what the law did was it cleansed. The law was given to keep you clean. So if you followed the law, you were remaining clean. Jesus is going, no, it's not that anymore. You see, I'll fulfill the law. Now it's about following me. I'm what makes you clean. He's foreshadowing the beauty of what he's about to do on the cross. Talk about conquering death. Just give me a few more chapters. I'll do it permanently, is what Jesus is doing. Everything is being recentered on him. You see, there's, there's no more time for, I, I need to kind of do all these things. He goes, it's the, it's the one thing. Come and follow me. And while you look at that, he doesn't always heal the same way, does he? He comes in and, and, and again, five verses ago, some woman touches him. It seems like he's almost oblivious. I hope I've proven there was a lot of intention in the way that Jesus interacted with this woman, but somebody touches him. On this occasion, he uses his voice. At another time, he's spitting in mud and he's rubbing it in this, in this person's eyes and they get healed. Here's the reality, and this is a cool side note. 
this is the kind of nerdy stuff you do when you go through seminary and details start to fascinate you. I didn't ever want to be a nerd, and now here I am, and I'm, I'm so lost. But I want you to think about this. When God created the earth, how did he create the earth? He spoke. Okay, and then we read John 1, 1, and we find out that in the beginning was the word. Who was the word? Say Jesus, just Sunday school answer. Good, okay, good job. Okay, Jesus, all right, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and nothing that was created was created except through him. So God spoke, and he spoke through, so, so Jesus was the one who spoke creation into existence. That same voice that spoke everything that you and I know as creation into existence, the same voice that terrifies the demons, is now being used to command this girl's spirit back into her body. And yet he doesn't always do it the same way, does he? Do you know why? Because he knows his kids too well. If every time Jesus healed, he'd just walk up and he put his hand on the forehead and then he said the 10 magic words that he was supposed to say, can you imagine how messed up the church would be today? We'd all be running around trying to do the same spell that Jesus did to heal people. We'd be so bummed out when it didn't work. What Jesus is doing, again, is recentering on, it's not about the process, it's about power, and the power is found only in me. This is about me. I'm that important to what's about to take place. And here's the point I wanna make, and this is important for all of us. We're talking about restoration, I said, for two weeks. So if Jesus is healing all these people in different ways, he's restoring lives in all these different ways, what you have to see in your own life is that your restoration may not look like your friends. When you're sitting back in your life and you're walking through things and you're going, you know what? I'm looking and I'm waiting for Jesus to show up and he was showed up in my friend's life this way and so now I gotta figure out, like, I just gotta get him to show up that way. Uh-uh. Because he knows you personally. He knows what you need. So he's gonna give you what you need. He's not gonna necessarily give you what your friend needed because that may not be what you need. He will show up how he wants to because the process is not the same. It's his power in your life that produces restoration. We can't look at it that way. And one of my primary points for you today is this. What I want us to shift to is having an expectant heart, not expectations. Here's what I mean by that, because the whole room just went, I've been told my whole life to pray specifically. Why can't I do that anymore? You can. But here's what I need you to see. Expectations say, Jesus, this is how I need you, so I need you to show up this way. And what I watch over and over again in my life and other lives is the fact that Jesus shows up this way, his plan in their life was accomplished, and they go, see, Jesus never showed up. Because they're looking for him in a specific way, and all of a sudden, he shows up over here, and they go, well, see, God forgot me. That doesn't work, church, because you're now saying, this is the only way I'll take you. But when you come in and you have an expectant heart, what all of a sudden you're doing is saying, I will take you however you come. I just want you, and I trust that you have a plan for my life and that that plan will be best for me even if it's not meeting my expectation because I want your plan more than I want my expectation met. After that, verse 55 says that this girl's spirit returns. She gets up immediately, and he gives orders for something to be given her to eat. This is really weird, isn't it? And I mean, I have a category for this, okay? I've never been dead, just, okay? I can only speak from my experience. I've never been dead, all right? But I can imagine it takes it out of you. <laughs> I can imagine that after you've died, you probably need a light snack <laughs> and just a little something to kinda, you know, get the blood sugar up again. That makes sense to me. 
but I think this is about more than this. If you read the beginning of Acts, we get this great account of what Jesus did after he's resurrected. It says that he meets for 40 days, and he sits there and he meets with all the apostles. He, he meets with them and, and he's eating with them. And that detail's always included. And, and the reason being is, the best way to show someone that you're not a figment of their imagination is to make physical food disappear into a physical body. It illustrates that it's not a gag, it's not a magic trick, and based on what we see in verse 56, it says her parents were amazed. That word amazed in the Greek means to be outside of one's mind. They are in the corner of the room losing it. And it would be really easy in the midst of that moment to have them sitting there going, um, okay, and run outside and go, our daughter's healed. And everyone's like, man, somebody needs to hug her. She's really hurting right now. But Jesus proves, no, no, this isn't that. Um, you know what? I, okay, I can tell you guys are losing it. We need to bring it down a notch. Would you give her some food? Let's show them that this is real, that their reality just changed because I showed up and did something powerful. Verse 56 kind of closes this out, and we'll start to apply this pretty heavily right here. It says, her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Again, this is kind of one of those why do we continue to see, these, these seem like counterintuitive things for Jesus to ask. I think the reality here, a lot of commentators say, well, at different times when Jesus says, tell no one, it's because it's, it's really to kind of shield his ministry from an overabundance of exposure. He wasn't ready to kind of fully unveil uh, everything that he was gonna do. Uh, that just doesn't fit here, does it? I mean, he just healed a woman in public like five verses ago. Like, people are sitting and waiting for him. They're following him. The cat's out of the bag. Like, he's a bit of a baller in this area. And so, you know, we're coming here now and we're going, what does this mean? And again, you don't have to follow me in this way. I just, I'm telling you, I think this is really sweet, what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing is he is giving this family what he knows they need, even though what they may want is to go run out into the neighborhood and just tell everybody what has happened. Jesus knows, though that would seem to glorify and be best for him, Jesus is going, here's what's most important, that you guys just kind of tuck in, you've had a bit of a day. This is what's best for you, is to just be a family tonight because you've had a lot happening. I mean, you think about their last 48 hours. There came a point where Jairus' wife walks up to him and goes, listen, I know that everything that you're doing right now, all of the stuff that you've got at the synagogue and the temple, that's a big deal. You've gotta leave all that behind. You've gotta go and find this man named Jesus. Go and get him. Jairus takes a journey to the Capernaum coast. He, he falls and no sooner have his knees hit the sand and he's leaving all of this behind. Because keep in mind, church, no one would have taken him back in Judaism the second he fell at their sworn enemy's feet to say, will you help me? But he's that desperate. So he walks this out, interruption, interruption, healing this woman, finding out his daughter's dead. Meanwhile, his wife's at home, planning funerals, mourning the death of this, this daughter of theirs. They come back, Jesus is saying all this weird stuff. Now they're in this room, she's alive again. This family is a wreck. And Jesus goes, the last thing you need is to tell anyone about this. What you actually need is to just, just sit in it for a minute and we're gonna, we're gonna go. What I wanna kind of lead you towards here is that Jesus really knows what you need. In fact, if we were to take the last 16 verses and just put it into one statement, it would be this statement here, that the last 16 verses have taught us to press on from relief to restoration because Jesus always has the best for you. 
That's hard when we get into tough times in our life. That's hard when we get to challenges. And, and we all have stories that are so different. And so I wanna share one from my life with you right now. It was about seven years ago, and I was newly sober, kind of pulling my life together from the, the disaster that it had been, and I started volunteering here at the church about 90 days into that walk. I met with Ryan Heath, he's our children's pastor, and he just kind of looked at me and he said, all right, I'm gonna do this with you. And so he kind of said, but I, you know, I wanna keep you near me. And so we co-kind of led this eighth grade group of knuckleheads, and I kind of got to lead a small group with them. Some of them are your kids. So you know they're knuckleheads. I still love them dearly, I meet with them regularly, but I kind of walked into this whole thing going, wow, this is fun. I started volunteering and volunteering and volunteering until my job was getting in the way of my volunteering, not the other way around. And so I kind of went, I think I'm supposed to do this full time. And there was a minister and training program here at Scottsdale Bible, it's now called our ministerial residency. And I applied for it, and the first thing that I had to do was get accepted into Phoenix Seminary. I was like, great, it's gonna be awesome. So I went in and I wrote some very honest entrance essays it talked about my sobriety. It talked about what uh, my wife and I had been through in our marriage, and that was really tough and painful. It talked about just my life. And like people at the church were saying, we just can't wait to have you come and to be a part of the MIT. People at the seminary were like, we're excited to have you. This will be a fun journey. As I was sitting there and kind of walking through all of this, everything was going great until I got a letter from the seminary. And it was from Roma Royer, who has become a friend since then. I didn't know her at the time, but it just said, Rustin, uh, based on your entrance essays, we'd like you to take a year and mature in your faith, your sobriety, and your marriage. And it was like, oh my gosh. Now, just to close this loop, in case I forget to later, I, I got to sit in front of Roma Royer when God's plan took kind of full effect and just tell her how much I appreciate what an incredible godly woman she was because she heard God's voice and his plan for my life better than I could at the time. But within 10 days of receiving that letter, I lost my current job, it was 2010, everyone was losing jobs, the economy was such a mess back then. And then 10 days after that, we found out we were pregnant with our first child. It was just a wave of like, I just don't know what to do. I mean, I was just, I was freaking out. And so I sat back at that point and I kind of tried to figure out what to do next. I went and I got a job. Uh, I went and I got trained to do paintless dent repair. So I fixed dents in cars. Uh, probably some of yours, of which I'm sorry. <laughs> There's no warranty program, so you're out of luck. But um, I started fixing dents in cars, and I remember being wrapped around the fender of a Ford Expedition at 118 degrees, like on the pavement, and just going, I said ministry, not misery. <laughs> Enunciate, and we could have. I was just really going, I just don't know what's going on. And at that point, I actually, I just to tell you, like I, I didn't do this perfect at all. I got so frustrated with where God was taking me because I had an expectation and it wasn't being met and God was changing my heart, which ended up being wonderful. But in the midst of that moment, I just looked at God and I went, fine, if you want me to be in the MIT program, Scottsdale Bible's gonna have to call me. Pretty bratty, right? Like, it's okay, you could be like, oh, gosh, this guy's lost it. And I did, and I quickly repented and went, that wasn't cool. But I started kind of trying to figure this thing out. And about 10 to 20 days after I got home from training in paintless dent repair, the largest hailstorm in Arizona history <laughs> just trenched its way right through Scottsdale's auto area. I had more work than I knew what to do with. And here's what I want you to hear. Everybody hears stories like these and they go, oh, so then it was awesome, right? No, it wasn't. <laughs> It was really hard. 
It took me 40 minutes to fix a dent at the time, and I was on trunks and hoods with 200 of them. That's not good math for those of you trying to catch up. It was awful, and yet God taught me an incredible work ethic and patience and trust in that road. My family was blessed financially because we had a ton of work, and in that process, as I started moving along, once we got through the first 60 days, which were just insane, I started to have all this free time to go into volunteer. By the time it was time for me to return back to the MIT application, I had volunteered my way into basically kind of this unspoken, unpaid intern role that they went, well, Rustin's effectively in MIT already. Why don't we just do this? Why don't we call him? And I got a call from Dale Galloway saying, hey, would you reapply for the MIT program? I just went, you didn't have to do that. Appreciate it. But it was just a fingerprint from the Lord going, I heard you. You were being a brat, but I heard you. In the midst of that road, as I was looking up the mountain and the Lord was taking me down the hill, going, I need to go there, and the Lord goes, but I'm taking you here. Very dear friends of mine, Corey and Gail Shutnick, gave me a book, and it was called Hind's Feet on High Places by Hannah Hernard. It's an amazing book about when the Lord takes you down the hill and your direction is up the mountain. And that's really the challenge with so many of these things. I mean, obviously, like, when the Lord walked this whole road out, like, I'm here with you today. The pastoral ministry thing worked out really well. But here's what I need you to see, church. I need you to see that there's a lot of moments where this is just hard. You have an expectation, and it's not being met by the Lord. And here's what's hardest. This doesn't just apply in these situations where it's like we, we didn't have a prayer met. People are sitting in this room right now and they have to apply this teaching to cancer. They have to apply this teaching to bankruptcy. They have to apply this teaching to losing children and family members. And I have friends, guys, just so you know, this is why being in a group is so important because I have friends who have looked at me having buried children and said, God is good. Now, I don't have a category for that. It's a thing unseen for me, but I've watched someone testify to it and it shatters me. And it helps me realize that God always has a plan for my life. But the reality is if we're gonna sit back and we're gonna say that we believe in Jesus and we're gonna walk through roads, if you're gonna sit back and you're gonna say, I wanna be in ministry and I wanna lead people, Jesus, I wanna lead people to faith, well then Rustin, I'm gonna have to take you down a path where you have to exemplify a great deal of it. If you wanna sit back and you wanna care for broken, lost, marginalized people, you're gonna have to sit back and feel broken, lost, and marginalized. See, we all love my stories because they end so wonderfully and yet we hate when we have to go through the shaping effects that create them. We love hope-filled stories of victory. We just don't like battle. And my challenge to you today, church, is to grab hold of the fact that God has a plan for your life that exceeds your own. And sometimes it's not about getting to the top of the mountain, it's the road on the way and the people you'll interact with, the lives that he will change, the families, the generations that will be completely revolutionized because God saw that you would bump into that person, their marriage would be restored because of what they heard from you, and now generations will be changed because of the trickle effect from what God did through you because of situations that weren't easy. That's how the body works. But that is not easy. Brian Loritz said uh, a few weeks ago when he was here, he said, prosperity is a really tough teacher. It doesn't work real well. 
but trial, difficulty, those produce change. I'm real big on this, and I just, I want you guys to, to see, there are people in this room right now who, and, and at all of our campuses and all of our venues online, they're sitting back and they're just going, I have to think about my life differently. Your reality just changed because you started to see what Jesus is doing. A kingdom reality came down and you started to view restoration in a powerful way. You started to believe that it could actually work for you and your life. That's new, that's God moving you from here, I got this, it'll be okay, to I'll take you however you come. And that's a new reality. And what I want to give you the opportunity to do today is to respond from a new reality. I don't want you to have to wait a week to come back and to sing a worship song back at the Lord saying, I want you however you'll come. And so every campus, every venue online, we're all gonna sing the same song now. And it's a song that talks about taking us beyond where our feet can take us. Take us to where our feet will fail. Take us to places where we have no choice but to rely on you. See, that's the great gap that God fills in our lives. We go, Lord, I'm here, and I need to be here, and I have no way to get there. And he goes, perfect, because my highest goal in your life is that you become a more dependent child on me. But that is so culturally absurd, isn't it, church? We just go, no, I don't wanna be dependent on anything. He's safe, you can be dependent on him. He'll protect you, it won't always be easy, but it'll be worth it. So as we dismiss our, our campuses and our venues to have their time of worship now, let me close our time in prayer and then we'll all worship together. So Lord, we just come now. Uh, this is a tough word. This is not one of those things that is always easily received. This is a place where you and you alone have to do ministry in us that we are incapable of without you. You have to come and you have to, to lead us and guide us and love us and care for us out of places where we long for comfort so much that we forget that it doesn't always teach us to have faith in you. And that to, to press from relief to restoration requires a faith that your plan is best for us even when we don't know what it is. Lord, today my prayer over every person who we are ministering to right now is so simple. Lord. Will you give us a heart that cries out for you and says that we trust you? We trust you. Even though our circumstances aren't great, we trust you. Even though our families are hurting, our bodies are failing, our finances are meager, we trust you. And we just will take you however you come. Continue to shape and change our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.
into our lives again. So many times church can feel like this little respite from kind of the routine, and yet we've all got to return back to it. And so Lord, my prayer over this room right now as we all walk back out into our lives is Lord, that you would meet us this week in special ways. Lord, that you would just whatever it looks like for you to show up in your kids' lives, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear where you've already been, that we would start to experience you and your little fingerprints, the, the places where you go, I'm here and I'm with you. You, you always tell us that your, your yoke is easy and our reality is that a yoke has to be tied to something and so we just are reminded today that it's you that we're yoked to. It's easy because you're on the other side of it. And so, Lord, I just pray again over every person here, Lord, myself included, Lord, would you just continue to show us where you are bearing our burdens with us, where you are walking with us through painful things. You are meeting us in the midst of tears, crying with us, because that's what you tell us you do. So, Lord, it's with that that we, we walk back out into our week, singing praises of you and, and looking for you continually. We pray this in your name. Today, uh, you may have had a day that moved you deeply, and so we always have a prayer team that's down here ready to minister to anyone who's in need. So my encouragement is just, if that's where you're at today, please come down and let us care for you. That's what we're here to do. Otherwise, we love you so much. We'll see you next week.